Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. This morning, uh, we have a guest uh, pastor with us today, uh, Pastor Jim Shamaria. And uh, Pastor Jim is uh, grew up in our church, of course, and one of our young men. I've seen Jeff up here. I was thinking about uh, back in 1998. Uh, he was home from his first year of uh, college, and uh, he has been uh, on staff full-time at Celebration Bible Church in Granville, Michigan. And just this past fall, he was uh, chosen to be the, the senior pastor. Um, so back there, he is Jim the Younger, and I'm Jim the Elder, because we're both Pastor Jim Shamaria. So we've got that straightened out. Went this routine last time you came up and preached, so I think we're all good with that. And uh, But Jim, it's good to have you with us this morning to open God's Word for us, and let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Uh, the young people in our church, uh, so many who are uh, serving full-time in ministry, uh, both in our country and around the world. We just thank you that we've had a, a part in their upbringing. We pray now as uh, Jim opens the word that our hearts will be open to your word, and it is your word that we will hear this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Hey, everybody. It's good to be back. It's always good to be back uh, here in Seattle. It's also Always great to be back here in my home church, the church I grew up in and was so influential to me. Uh, my wife, Natalie, is on her way back to Grand Rapids right now. She just couldn't stay away from the cold uh, any longer, so we sent her back. No, our work schedules are different, so she's on her way back, uh, but she wishes she could have been here with, with me as well for this morning. But like I said, it's good to be here. Uh, I live in Grand Rapids. Anybody, how many people have been to Grand Rapids, the beautiful city of Grand Rapids, Michigan? Recently voted uh, America's number one city to visit, not live, just visit. So make sure you come check that out sometime. It's a good time. Uh, but living in the Midwest, uh, you kind of get, you have your ear to the news of all the other things that are happening in the Midwest. And recently, uh, the great city of the Midwest, Chicago, uh, was stripped of some of its dignity. Maybe you heard of this. Uh, for decades, the city of Chicago was home to the tallest building in America, right? The Sears Tower, the Willis Tower now. Anybody been to the Sears Tower, seen the Sears Tower? It's a pretty massive building, but just in November, uh, it was officially uh, ripped of that crown because we now in America have a new tallest building. We have a picture up here. Whoa, nice transition. Uh, this is uh, the new tallest building in America, uh, One World Trade Center. It's in Manhattan. Um, it's a good-looking building, right? Uh, as much as Chicago had the Sears Tower. So there it is, One World Trade Center. Uh, now, one of the things that we understand about this building, of course it was built on uh, the location of, of the World Trade Centers and that horrible tragedy uh, many years ago now. And so one thing that we know just from being American and just from knowing what's going on in our culture, uh, that this building, as beautiful as it is, uh, as impressive as it is, as tall as it is, it's about a lot more than just the glass and the steel and the concrete and all of the things that make up the building, right? It's not just another place for people to have an office in New York. It's not just, you know, another place to sell rent. But this building represents uh, a lot more, right? This is a building that, from some of the various early days after 9-11, uh, people began talking, we're going to rebuild, you know, we're going to come back and it's going to be bigger, it's going to be better, it's going to be, you know, taller, it's going to look better. And, they, and it's true, it did a good job. 
But the reason uh, behind all of that rhetoric and all of that talk is because this building represents uh, the American spirit, right? It represents America's desire to come back and not to be defeated and not let this tragedy define us. And so everybody knows that when you look at One World Trade Center, uh, this is much more than just a building, but it represents all of the emotion. It represents the American uh, spirit. It represents so much more than simply uh, the physical structure of the building. Now, let's go hypothetical situation here. Let's say uh, in the, the years after this, uh, they began talking, all right, we're going to come back, we're going to rebuild. And they start the process and, you know, they start building. And, and for a lot of the time when buildings are being made, you don't quite know what they look like for the first few years, right? It's a lot of scaffolding and foundation and all of that. So a couple years go by uh, and they say, all right, it's been three years. We are done with uh, the replacement or we are done with the new World Trade Center. Like, okay, cool. Let's check it out. And so uh, the pictures start coming in and it looks a little something like this. Uh, that would be a little disappointing, right? Uh, that, does anybody know what that building is? It's in Minneapolis. Um, but that one, which is disappointing in itself. But uh, <laughs> that would be a little bit, you know, uh, anticlimactic. We're waiting for this building that's going to represent all that we are as Americans. This is what, this is what we got. <laughs> this is it. Uh, the reason that would be unacceptable uh, and the reason that I think people would be upset, you know, they would uh, hit to the streets and write rants on Facebook and do all those other effective things. Um, but the reason people would be so upset is because this building, the One World Trade Center, represents so much more uh, than just a building. It represents so much more uh, than just a place for people to work and just a place for people to, to live. Okay. So now that we, we've talked about buildings that mean more than the buildings, we're going to look at a building in the scripture, uh, which is, in fact, probably the central location. If you read through the Bible, if you follow the story of the Old Testament, there's this one building, this one location, this one uh, facility that is uh, quite literally the center of the scripture. And of course, it's the temple in Jerusalem. So we're going to look uh, at when the temple was first built. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, snuggle up to someone who does. Second Chronicles chapter 3. The children can be dismissed. If any of you want to go. If you want to stay, otherwise you can go. All right. So Second Chronicles chapter 3 is where we're going to be, uh, where we're going to start this morning. Uh, we're going to look at a building that represents more than a building. Um, so... Just for a little bit of background to get you uh, to where we're at, if you're maybe new to the story of the Bible, Second uh, Chronicles jumps into what we would call the golden age of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, Israel, God's people, at this point in their, in their existence as a people, are really doing well. Uh, they're expanding their borders. Uh, they are becoming a military force. They're becoming an economic force. They're really starting to, to kind of influence the world. This is something that they had been looking forward to doing for hundreds and hundreds of years since the time of Abraham. God said, you will be a people and you will bless the world. And now, under the reign of Solomon, uh, after the reign of his father, David, uh, Israel is finally beginning to live out its calling. It's finally beginning to be the people that God had always intended them to be. And so, under Solomon, Israel is really starting to move forward. Really, Israel is really starting to experience all of that goodness. 
So uh, this is where we jump in. Uh, Solomon began his career. Maybe you know a little bit about Solomon. Solomon be- began his career as king, began his reign on a really good note. He was a really wise man. He was really devoted to the Lord. Uh, he was a very successful leader. Things were really good for Solomon. And that's how it began. And that's where we pick up in the story here. So chapter 3, verse 1. Then... Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem at Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father, David. It was on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. He began building on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. The foundation Solomon laid for building the temple of God was 60 cubits long and 20 cubits wide, using the cubit of the old standard. The portico at the front of the temple was 20 cubits long across the width of the building and 20 cubits high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. He paneled the main hall with pine and covered it with a fine gold and decorated it with palm tree, with a palm tree and chain design. He adorned the temple with precious stones and the gold he used was gold of Parvaim. He overlaid the ceiling beams, door frames, walls and doors of the temple with gold. He, called, he carved cherubim on the walls. He built the most holy place, its length corresponding with the width of the temple, 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide. He overlaid the inside with 600 talents of fine gold. The gold nails weighed 50 shekels. He also overlaid the upper parts with gold. Verse 10, in the most holy place, he made a pair of sculptured cherubim and overlaid them with gold. Now jump down to verse 14. He made a curtain of blue and purple and crimson yarn and fine linen with cherubim worked into it. In the front of the temple, he made two pillars, which together were 35 cubits long, each with a capital on top measuring five cubits. He made interwoven chains and placed them on top of the pillars. He also made a hundred pomegranates and attached them to the chains. He erected the pillars in the front of the temple on the one to the south and the one to the north. The one to the south, he named Jenkins, and the one to the north, he named Boaz. Okay, now I understand that's probably not the most exciting passage of Scripture that you've ever read. read. This is probably not the stuff that you read in the morning to get you really pumped up for the day. But there's a reason uh, why there is so much detail about the temple. Uh, there's a reason, and you could go on. The next chapter has even more details. You could read other places uh, in the scriptures where it just lays out all of these minute, fine details about what the physical temple itself looked like. And there's a reason behind that. Uh, here's some, some pictures, recent photographs that were discovered uh, of the temple, if you're a visual person. So that's maybe what the outside would have looked like. And the next one is, is the inside. When you look at these pictures of the temple, when you read this description, I mean, some of the things that jump out at you, first of all, is there's a lot of gold involved, right? Uh, there's a lot of carving. Uh, there's just a lot of care that's put into this temple. Throughout the scriptures, and as this, this process is being described, uh, it seems that Solomon would bring in some of the best of the best when it comes to woodworkers and goldsmiths and people who could uh, sew the curtain together. And the finest craftsmen in all of Israel would come and work on this temple. Solomon really, really cared about what this temple looked like. He cared about the physical appearance of this building. And so why? 
You know, if this is just a church, why does he care so much? Couldn't it have just been, you know, if you come to my church in Grand Rapids, it it seriously looks like a warehouse with carpet in it. Like, why couldn't he just do that? We can sing there and you can do Sunday school classes. You know, you can have your little smokies in between between the things. You know, you can do all of that. You guys don't do that anymore? (laughs) Beef smokies, sorry. Call them little smokies in Grand Rapids. you can do all of that stuff in, in just any building. Why do you care so much about what this temple looks like? Solomon, why are you putting so many resources into this? Why are you putting so much time and care into making this temple look as it does? Some of you probably know the answer to this, but I think uh, one of the ways we can, we can get a glimpse is in a couple chapters over. Chapter 6. In chapter 6, uh, of Second Chronicles. This is uh, essentially what we would call the grand opening of the temple. They finished the construction. All of the people of Israel have gathered there in Jerusalem around the temple for the, the grand opening, the christening of the temple. All of the priests are there. Everyone's dressed up. This is kind of like a royal affair. Maybe the ancient equivalent of breaking a bottle of champagne over the bow of a, of a boat. This is like the big opening event. And Solomon, as the king, uh, is kind of leading the festivities. He's going to do some prayers. He's going to give some speeches. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 1, uh, Solomon it says, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Now, if you've been around the Bible, if you've grown up in this church and the, the great Bible teaching you get here, This is probably something that you know, right? The temple in Jerusalem, that's where God dwells. But let's take a step back and really kind of digest what that means, okay? So for the people of Israel, uh, their understanding, and this is the proper understanding, uh, is that their God, uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, was the one true God, okay? Meaning that this is the God who created all things. Everything that they have experienced in this world was created by their God. Not only that, but their God uh, was still controlling things. This was the same God who with a mighty hand brought them out of the, the grasp of the world's greatest army at the time, the Egyptians, and led them uh, into freedom. This was the God who was sustaining them. This was the God who was to be feared. I think sometimes we downplay. I think the, the people of Israel... They respected God. They had a reverence for God. But I think they also really uh, maybe feared his power in a good way. And so this was the God of Israel, okay? This God that created all things, this God that was in control of all things, this God that was this massive, powerful force. Later on in his prayer, in fact, Solomon is going to say, the heavens and the earth can't contain you. Why would I think that this temple could contain you? But you promised that you would live here. And so this idea uh, that God is all places. God is all-powerful. God is everywhere. God is God. (laughs) Yet, at the same time, Solomon has this understanding, the people of Israel have this understanding, because God said so, that in a very special uh, yet mysterious way, while God is everywhere, He also is dwelling specifically in this place, in this temple. Maybe we could say that the temple was the throne room of the king of the universe. So God is everywhere, yet in a very special way, he lives in this place. And so for Solomon, as he's building this temple, for the people of Israel as they're experiencing what this temple is and seeing this temple, 
they understand that this is much more than just a building, right? This isn't just gold. This isn't just two pillars named Boaz and Jenkins, which I think we should get back in that and start naming our pillars more often. Uh, but this is much more than just a building. But for the people of Israel, and for Solomon, this was, in fact, the home of the God of the universe. This was the place where the God who created all things dwelled. All right? So this is the temple, more than just a building. Now, let's move forward in the story a little bit. Uh, Solomon starts out really good. Things go pretty poorly uh, not too long after this. His heart is pulled away from God. He begins to follow after all of the gods of the neighboring people. And because of that, his kingdom is torn from him. And it begins, uh, over the next hundred years, this downward spiral where Israel goes from being this golden age, this empire, or this, this group of people who are heading towards being an empire, uh, to now they're dwindling uh, to, to almost nothing. In the year 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire comes and kills a massive amount of the people of Israel. The, those that they don't kill, they take and they scatter all throughout the world. So they're pretty much gone. Now Israel's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Until 586, pretty much all that's left of this great kingdom is one city, the city of Jerusalem. And in 586, that city is surrounded by the fiercest empire the world had seen up until that point, the Babylonians. The Babylonians are surrounding the city of Jerusalem. They lay siege to the city. And eventually, the worst nightmare of the Israelites comes through. The Babylonians climb over the walls. They knock down the walls. They pour into the city. The scripture describes them like locusts climbing over the walls as they run into the city. They begin killing men and women and children. They burn all of the structures and then uh, they head to the temple. It's just a building, but it's much more than a building. This is the place where God himself dwells. And the Babylonians go to the temple and they begin to just dismantle it. They tear down the walls. They set fire to the building. They begin to take all of the articles and all of the things that are in the temple away. Now the temple is laying there in ruins. This home for God, burning, smoldering, smoking. The stones aren't even on top of one another. Destroyed. So if you're from Israel, if you're a per person in Jerusalem, this has to raise a lot of questions. How could this happen? How is it possible that the home where God himself lives is destroyed? Is God gone? Has God forgotten us? Was God never there uh, at all? What is going on here? And so you can imagine, maybe there's some event that you as a child saw, and you will never unsee that image, right? Maybe some of you have had that experience. As these people are being led out of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, the ones they didn't kill, there's archaeological evidence that the Babylonians would often put rings in people's nose and lead them uh, as cattle. These people of Jerusalem, this once mighty empire, is now they're being led out of their city like cattle. And they walk by the smoldering remains of their temple. And this is an image that these children will never unsee. This house of God laying in ruins as they're taken away into captivity. And so for the next 50 years, the people of Israel are living in Babylon, 
uh, as captives. The people who were adults at that time have probably died, but those children uh, who saw that temple have grown up. And as they grow, they begin uh, to ask questions. Will we ever return? Will we ever get to go back to Jerusalem? Will we ever get to rebuild our temple? Will we ever have what we had? Will we ever get to see the house of God again? And as they grow older, they tell these stories to their kids, these children that are born in captivity, saying, man, you should have seen the temple, the gold and the cherubims and Boaz and Jenkins. It was awesome. You wish you could have seen this temple. Now, uh, in the year 536, 50 years after they were taken into captivity, something that was seemingly unforeseen happened. The Babylonian Empire had crumbled at that point, and a group of Medes and Persians, led by a man named Cyrus the Great, uh, overtook that empire. One of the first things that Cyrus did, maybe you've read about Cyrus the Great, he's a very important historical figure. Cyrus wrote edicts saying anybody who was taken captive by the Babylonians, who is living in this uh, oppressive, oppressive captivity, you are allowed to go home and rebuild your lives and rebuild your cultures. And so the people of Jerusalem, you can read this edict uh, at the end of Second Chronicles and at the beginning of the book of Ezra, where we're going to get to in a second. You can read this edict written by Cyrus saying you can go home and you can rebuild your lives. You can rebuild your city. Now, the people of Jerusalem who are living in captivity and have now been told they can go home, there was not a single doubt in their minds that this wasn't simply an act by a real nice uh, militant world leader. But all of the people in Jerusalem were absolutely sure that this was an act of God. God was allowing them to go home. God was working and moving them so that they could return to their home and rebuild their lives. So, they do. Uh, following God's direction, they return from Babylon and they begin to rebuild. So, turn with me to the book of Ezra, just a few pages to your right. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 3, uh, just, just in a, for a second here. And so, the people of Jerusalem uh, return uh, from captivity. They're back in their city. Uh, they've kind of taken a few years, a few months to kind of settle and, and to get back into the swing of things. And now, in chapter 3, uh, we'll start in verse 8. They actually uh, get to work here. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work, appointing Levites 20, uh, 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons, and the brothers of Kadmiel, and his sons, descendants of Hadoviah, and the sons of Henadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. So they're there, and we got a whole bunch of people working. Now, let's stop for just one second and, and, and remind ourselves of something. There's a whole age range of people here. In fact, it says Levites 20 years and older. Okay? So, that means if you are a Levite and you are 20 years old, 30 years old, 40 years old, or, you know, just in your early 50s, you are someone who never actually saw the temple. You've heard stories, maybe you've seen um, pictures or, or, or sketches, you know about the temple, you know what it represented, but you've never seen it with your eyes. Then you have the people 
uh, who are in their late 50s, 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe even 100 years old, who had seen the temple. In fact, they saw the temple on their way out of town. They knew what the temple was. They knew what the temple represented. They knew that this was the home for God. They knew that this was a building, but it was much more than just a building. So two very distinct groups of people. Those who had not experienced the temple, and those who had experienced the temple. All right? Let's keep going. Uh, where are we? Verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with trumpets and all the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So they're all there together in the grand reopening of the temple now. They've laid the foundation and all the people are singing and shouting for joy. Now, remember, we have the two groups of people. Let's see what happens. Uh, Verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Now, most scholars agree that there are two very distinct emotions on display here. We have those who have never seen the temple who finally see its foundations laid and are shouting for joy because this is it. God has brought us back. God has allowed us to rebuild this temple. Then you have the older people. But like I said, most scholars agree that this is not uh, evidence of tears of, of joy. <laughs> these people aren't crying because they're so happy. But these are tears of disappointment. These are tears... <laughs> of sadness. These are tears of, that's what, that's it? That's, that's what you're giving us? In fact, uh, the prophet Haggai, uh, who is prophesying, speaking uh, on behalf of God right around this time, he says, he says something here, if you can go to the next slide. Uh, in the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, into the remnants of the people. So these are the people we were just reading about. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory, the temple? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? This is really interesting to me. Because not only are these older people who saw this temple, this house that was more than a house, are they weeping because it's not what they expected it to be? But God Himself is affirming that. God isn't saying, buck up, you guys, come on, this is, this is what I gave you, be happy with it. God is actually saying to these people, I know you're disappointed that this temple isn't as much as you thought it was going to be, and I understand because you're right. It is not what you thought it was going to be. This temple is nothing in comparison to the former temple. And so these older people, while they are are weeping and crying because this temple didn't live up to their expectations, uh, while they're doing this, they are being affirmed by God. And so we can't say, okay, those old people, just get over it. You know, this is is life now. You've got to move on. But God himself says, 
I get it. I understand. I know how much better that temple was than this temple is here today. So here's the scene in Ezra. Here's the scene of this people who are experiencing something God is doing. Some are so excited because they're a part of this. Some are disappointed because it's not what they thought it was going to be. And I don't think it takes a whole lot for us to find ourselves in this story. I don't think it takes a big stretch for us to put ourselves in the place of the people of Israel. Now, I don't, I don't know all of you personally. I, I don't know your stories. I don't know uh, how your, your recent history has been. Uh, but I know that this is the new year, which is a time that we often reflect, right? We look back and see how things have gone this year. Some of you perhaps had the greatest year of your life this year. If I asked you to raise your hand, you would say, this is by far one of the greatest years I've experienced. Maybe you got a new job. Maybe um, you've gotten a clean bill of health from your doctor. Maybe you're in a new relationship and things are going great. Maybe your bank account is looking good. Your spiritual life is just rocking. And this is a great year. That's awesome. And I'm very happy for you. We are all very happy for you. And don't tell anyone. They might punch you on the way out. But we are all very excited for you. But... I would also venture to say that a lot more of us maybe will look back at this year and the things that will stick out are uh, that call we got from the doctor or uh, when we lost him or her or when that relationship completely broke down or when our boss called us into their office or this happened or this happened or this happened. I'm sure a lot of us are going to look back at this year and say, you know, I've really had it a lot better at times. And so I think what we tend to do uh, as humans is we can think back to a time when God's blessing was very evident in our lives. When God very clearly was working, when things were good, when we had been given this great amount, and we say, yes, that was it, that was the time. And we look back at that, and that's a great thing to do. It's good to remember. It's good to thank. It's good to look towards what God has been doing. But sometimes, perhaps what we have the tendency to do is spend so much time looking back to the ways that God has blessed us in the past that we are completely missing how God is blessing us in the present. Even if that blessing would be affirmed by God as saying, this is not as good as that was. That's okay. But sometimes, uh, maybe we could say it like this, preoccupation with past blessings can lead to ignorance of current blessings. Sometimes, we can be looking so much at what God has done that we're completely missing what God is doing. And so, uh, this year, this new year, as you look back, perhaps this was the greatest year of your life. Perhaps this was the worst year of your life. Perhaps it's probably, you know, maybe a 60-40 or somewhere in there. Uh, Don't, uh, as a follower of Jesus, uh, as a child of God, as a member of the body of Christ, or maybe if you're not even at that point yet, if you're just curious about this whole God thing, don't uh, let a preoccupation of some great things that God has done 
blind you to the good things that God is doing right here, right now. Don't live so much in then and there and that that you're missing this and here and now. Because I promise you that God is blessing you right now. I promise you that God is working in your life right now. But are you too worried about what He did do that you're missing what He is doing? That's my prayer for us as a global community of Christians as we move forward into this next year, the years to come. That we are people who are aware of what God has done, thankful for what God has done, we're able to talk and even ask God, hey God, I would love for it to be like that again. That's okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But my prayer is that we are a people who are embracing what God is doing now and how God is working now. Let's pray. God, we can say these things with confidence because we know that you are active and moving and working in our lives. God, we look at the words of Paul who says he knows what it's like to be in plenty. He knows what it's like to be in want. And the secret is understanding that it is you, it is Christ who gives him strength. God, help us to be a people who are aware of that. Help us to be a people who are confident of that. Help us to be a people who embrace the here and the now. God, because you are moving, you are working, you are present. We want to have our eyes open to that. In your name, all God's people said together, Amen. For joining us for worship today. And uh, thank you, uh, Pastor Jim, for sharing with us uh, from God's Word. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if he even realizes this. I, I didn't really talk to him about it. But in a few days, January 1st, 2014, which means that this year is our church's 50th anniversary. We started in 1964. Many of you, every year it's a few less, were here. I was here. When this building went up, and boy, those were exciting times. Nothing more exciting to see a church like this built stick by stick, stone by stone, and to have our inauguration and our dedication and to see God at work. It's good times. Good times. I think we've been reminded this morning of the best years behind us or ahead of us. God is working. Lives are changing. People are coming to Christ. God is working in your life. And I ask this morning, if you happen to be here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I just want you to know before you leave this place that God loves you so much that Jesus Christ, who we just celebrated his birth this last week, went to the cross of Calvary and died for you and rose from the dead and offers you eternal life and forgiveness for sins. This could be a wonderful year for you as part of God's family and knowing that your sins are forgiven. And I ask you today... In his quiet moments, we close the service in prayer. Would you receive Christ as your Savior? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are working in our lives, that you are doing wonderful things, that lives are being changed. We look back on this past year, and people have come to Christ and have passed from death to life. Your word has been taught. People are growing. People are sharing their faith. And we've had challenges, Lord. We've had difficulties. 
uh, even as we've mentioned today, as we've uh, lost one of our founders and each, each year, Lord, uh, you call our friends home with us. We know that there have been challenges and difficulties. We've been reminded this morning our lives are a mix of that joy and that sorrow. But in all things, God works together for good to those who love him. We thank you for this encouraging word from your word this morning. May we take it home with us and may we be encouraged and may we look to your blessings and give you the thanks for all that you have done in our lives. Thank you for each person that has come today. May you bless them as they go forth and we leave in the joy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we have gathered today. And in his name we pray. Amen.